Hey, I'm your host, Sergey Kotlov, and this is the first episode of the Training Business Anatomy podcast. Our guest today is Jason Little, author, entrepreneur, and agile thought leader. Jason published his first book, Lean Change Management Innovative Practices for Managing Organizational Change, back in the fall of 2014. Fast forward to these days, there are 49 active facilitators and more than 10,000 students who went through workshops and vision and design by Jason. Impressively, he could run it alone without much stress or burnout and only recently hired his first employee. He achieved that by doing two things. First, he automated everything possible to automate. Second, he did what he preached in his book. He experimented a lot and kept things simple. Today, Jason is sharing his insights on building a global training business with a strong community of trainers. Welcome to the Training Business Anatomy podcast. Here, we try to answer one not-so-simple question – how to build and scale a successful training business. I'm your host, Sergey Kotlov, and we are ready to jazz. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sergey, how's it going? Pretty well. As I said to you a little before, a bit nervous. So, Jason, it's really nice to have you here, and thank you for joining me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason, uh, while preparing for this interview, I looked at your website and I got into the history of Lean Change Management and how it started. And it's a pretty awesome development, I would say, uh, from one person uh, starting how many years? About seven, eight years ago to around uh, 50 facilitators globally. Uh, more than 500, 600 trainings, uh, thousands of students. Please tell me how it all began. Sure. Um, so the the original ideas came from um, working in this enterprise transformation, 2008-ish or so around there, uh, one of the telecoms. And I remember it was New Year's Eve day, and I'm sitting just sitting in the office and uh, I, the funny thing is I actually worked in the exact same office a few years. Oh, geez, not even a few years, probably like 10 years earlier when they were another gigantic company. So it was kind of cool to come back and then see, you know, they, they still had some of the old company logos in some of the conference rooms and stuff like that. So it was kind of neat just to go back into the same environment where I was working as a call center person like way back when and then came in to uh, help this new company with some agile stuff. And I was just thinking that it wasn't working, like the transformation wasn't going anywhere. We were about eight months in and, you know, I was just thinking that this, this agile stuff is so freaking easy. Why can't they get it? Like what's wrong with these people, which I think is normal. Even today, people still kind of do the same thing. And then I just sat down and started writing a blog post just around thoughts. So there's got to be a better way to do this. Like there's, there's something I'm missing because it can't, as easy as this agile stuff is, it can't just be my perception. There's got to be something else going on. And that just opened up the the door to this whole organizational change aspect of Agile. And then that just led me down a different thought process, which led to, um, I guess, the first publication, which was an Agile transformation live lesson series that I did um, for Pearson Education. They wanted me to write a book, but I 
didn't do anything for about a year. And then that became their, uh, their live lessons. So um, Lisa Adkins did her coaching agile teams live lessons. And I did my agile transformation one. we went into the studio and recorded them both. And that launched the live lessons brand. And then the ideas were sitting around for a while, just waiting for a story. And then the commission, the company uh, in the book was the story. Otherwise, it would have been kind of like a manual. Here's how I like to think. Here's how I approach change, etc. But um, it was just waiting for that story to come out. So the first version, I released chapter by chapter on Lean Pub, like very lean startup like. That got the attention of a few companies. So I did some book study groups with some internal OD teams and CM teams. And then um, uh, Bashko, who I know you know, uh, Bashko Duarte, um, created Happy Melly Express, which was like, uh, a bridge between self-publishing and big company publishing. So I remember he and Jurgen were looking for an experiment for a book and I said, Hey, well, I'm going to rewrite mine. So how about this one? And that's where it all kind of started from just experiments. Okay. So in my understanding, and if I hear you correctly here, uh, the publish on the book was a turning point that actually relaunched or accelerated the brand and brought the company to life. Yep, exactly. Yep. Okay. Okay. Sounds cool, but it doesn't explain the business side. I mean, there are many authors out there, but definitely not all of them have successful global businesses. So what's the difference? Definitely not a book. What actually happened after that? I, I think the one of the, the key things was being a, you know, coming from a software development background. So being a developer, then being a product owner, then getting into agile coaching, then getting into the change and entrepreneurial space, I think helped a lot. I worked for a lot of startups from the early 2000s and on. So there was always this attitude of um, be responsive and open to new opportunities. And don't worry too much about intentionally planning things out um, to, to a certain degree, but be open for experiments. And one of the first ones we did was we had a Godfather package. So we used Indiegogo to actually fund the, the second edition of the book. And we had a, God, a Godfather package, which was basically the, the Godfather, you know, you pay X dollars. I don't remember what it was, maybe like 800 bucks or something like that. And you can organize and host the first workshop based on the book. And there was no workshop. There was no intention to create a training company. There was no intention to do a workshop, nothing like that. And a fellow named uh, Torsten Scheller in uh, Munich, Germany, bought the Godfather package. So it was like, oh, I guess I need to build a workshop now. <laughs> so uh, he, he actually sold two of them. So he said, all right, I sold two of them, you know, for a couple of months from now. Can you come to Munich? And I was like, all right, sure. So <laughs> I went to Munich and um, had some uh, had some nice sausages and some pretzels and some beer and I uh, went to some of the open markets and stuff like that and then we ran two workshops and he said what could I run these two like what would you charge me to run one of these I'm like well uh, what seems fair uh, so we just worked out a deal for the material and stuff like this and um, I said yeah sure go go ahead and do it and um, and then uh, the, the thought dawned on me, well, why don't I just try this with a business model and see if this works? So the, the first few workshops I started running, um, actually ran the workshops lean startup style too. So the first probably 10 to 15 
I used um, a net promoter wall, basically. So after every chunk of content, I would say now from zero to 10, how valuable was this and why? So very much ran, used a lot of the ideas in the book to actually create that whole thing. And there was always at least one person in each workshop that said, hey, can I train these two? Like I have clients that would love this stuff. Can I train it too? So it was the more people that kept asking, the more it was, okay, this, this needs to turn into a business. Okay, okay. That sounds pretty amazing. And then you realize that more and more trainers, more and more people asking to become licensed facilitators. And uh, you realize that it's, it's kind of a business coming to your day. What was your goal with it? I mean, creating, of course, but do you have something specific in mind, something being inspiring? Or you, you just told yourself, um, okay, it sounds okay, and I, I go with it? Mm-hmm. There, there were some, there were some loose ideas, because um, the whole, the whole idea with the licensing was the, the people that were were asking, hey, can I teach this course? It was they were already teaching Management 3.0. so Jurgen had already been using the uh, the exact same model for a few years before um, I started uh, copying and pasting basically what he was doing, and. Um, what I when I created my facilitator program, it was more adding the things that I thought was missing from Management 3.0. Um, so it's a different space, it's a different target audience, so the the, the programs couldn't be exactly the same. So m- most of my goals were around um, I want to have more of a community feel right away. I want to have more options and benefits and support. For facilitators, because you know, back then, ten years ago, it was basically you take the course, you pay a small fee, and there you go, go away and do whatever. Um, so the facilitators are kind of left to just figure it out on their own. And I wanted more of a, you know, a community-driven ecosystem around it, like a a closer knit network. Um, so there was that idea, and then there was also setting the bar higher. Uh, not using uh, certifications, which I know Management 3.0 doesn't do certifications either, but not wanting to call anything a certification. More of like, you've completed it, you've you've shown that you have knowledge. Not getting into the pyramid scheme that a lot of other um, things do today, which is, you know, you have to pay an extra fee every year to keep your certificate. But for me, I'm like, the knowledge never goes away you don't forget after a year and that's simply just trying to to get money out of people in a business model so i wanted it to be more about the values and principles and less just about how can i extract as much money out of this um so much of what's in the program was all kind of related to 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 that okay got it and did these goals change over the years i mean they weren't like that in the beginning right are they different from what you had when you started? Yeah, I think it's evolved more um, into a, I guess, like a real business. I guess you could say the first few years, it was kind of a side hustle. Um, you know, if you, you, uh, you, know, you remember when you first created the first iteration of Workshop Butler, right? It was like, hey, there's a need here for some stuff, but you had other stuff going on. Right. You had other work and, and other things happening. So it was kind of like that. It was a side hustle. 
it was small enough that I could manage it while still doing full-time coaching and consulting and other things. And then now probably the last couple of years, it's, it's, it's needed its own attention. So, um, that's, you know, basically using a lot of the stuff that I've been teaching companies using the Rockefeller habits and, you know, what's our three to five year goal? How do we break that down into annual goals? How do we break that down into quarterly and monthly and weekly, um, ideas, and then using OKRs as a way to basically drive the whole business. So it's, there's a little more structure now, but the values and the principles and the purpose is all the same. And the mechanics are, are the same. I mean, the, the, the licensing costs have increased because there's more value for people now. Um, and I wouldn't say it's more constrained, but it's not a case of just because you have money for a license, you can have one. So I, I turn down, I wouldn't say quite a bit, but I do turn down um, people who want to become facilitators because it's just, it doesn't seem like they're either in it for the right reasons or um, it's just a revenue stream for them. So like I can extract money out of people by offering this, this new thing. So it's still kind of loose in that way. Um, but it's still a little more structured and formal. Okay. Okay. And when you treated it as a side hustle, did you define the success of this hustle in any way? So did you say to yourself something like, okay, if I get this amount of money by the end of the year, it would be a success and I can count it as a successful experiment and try to just, I don't know, go full time uh, with it. That, that was a secondary one for sure. The primary one was um, facilitator happiness. So... Uh, are they happy with the materials? Are they happy with how I'm helping them promote? Um, I still join uh, as many classes as I can for other facilitators. So they always, it's, it's part of their, their, their selling too, is, hey, you, I'll join your last session for an hour, basically. So in person, they would obviously video me in unless I was in the city for some reason. Or now that everything is pretty much virtual, it's the same type of thing. So me, it's always been focused on the stuff that was ingrained in me as working as a developer in an IT. Like it's a service and it's a support function. I'm kind of like the Miles Flaging's Peach model. I'm kind of in the middle and the facilitators are the periphery. They're the ones in closer contact with the market. So they drive a lot of how the business evolves too. So just a totally different approach, I think, than most. Okay. If I got you correctly, from the beginning, you had two measurements uh, for the success of your business. The first one is the happiness of facilitators. Um, the second one is quite ordinary business target, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you measure the happiness of facilitators on a regular basis? Not as regular as I would want to, but yeah, we do, we do normally do some type of um, facilitator survey on a not a regular basis. It's starting to become a regular basis, but just, you know, how happy are you with the program? Um, what's missing that you would like to see? So it's it's more like a retrospective as opposed to just a hard measurement. And then the lagging indicators are just basically the the recurring revenue, the, the people that are attending. Um, you know, I think with the virtual stuff, we've, we've actually just hit over 1,100 courses. Um, 
Yeah, which surprised me because I was, you know, I was going in there digging for stats and just just to see what the difference the online made. And I was like, holy cow, <laughs> this is a lot of courses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's probably over 10,000 now, I think. Uh, um, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. So it was more mostly anecdotal, observational evidence. And then the official stuff was just really, um, you know, people who are sharing stories on social media, which now we obviously track that stuff. So we use a bunch of different metric dashboards and stuff to track uh, engagement across the entire internet and stuff like that. But it was mostly informal uh, because when it was small back then, I could talk to every facilitator on a weekly basis, basically. And I still do a lot of that today, but there's 58 now so it's a little bit harder but um yeah so definitely much more on the informal side and uh i, I guess a, a dedication to continual continuing to evolve based on that feedback so not just strictly about targets and measurements but more um you know am i listening to what it is that people want and need and am i adapting to that okay that's pretty amazing with these two measurements, uh, you defined your success for a side hustle, right? But how do you define a success for you right now? Mm -hmm. So we're uh, we're using uh, OKRs. So right now it's 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 just me, uh, my little robot buddy, Mister Zircon, who's my little automated buddy that does all my magical scripting in the back end and it's just been the two of us for the the longest period and then now uh june this year actually um sarika carbondas jumped in to help part-time this community community engagement so we have we're actually following a quarterly okr schedule now so we're we're using stuff that we actually that, that's in the book and stuff that we teach and stuff that's in our workshops um on ourselves basically so we have um, an objective for the year that we break down into quarters. And each of those quarters has a number of um, sometimes sub-objectives and then a bunch of key results. And then uh, actually just before we recorded this, we had our weekly planning. So Monday morning, we look at what's in our OKRs. We plan a, a goal for the week. Um, we review it at the end of the week. So that includes whatever those measurements are which could be social media engagement numbers. It could be, you know, people who are sharing stuff anywhere on the internet, which we have scripts and some automation stuff that captures all that type of stuff. And, uh, and then we react to that. And then we follow that same process every week. So it sounds to me like a much more organized process oriented approach that you had in the beginning. Is it correct? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. There's much more of a rhythm now because it's it's out. A lot of it is out of my brain. Um, that that because uh, it had to be, you know, bringing Sarika on. We we basically had to go through a couple of weeks of getting everything that uh, Mister Zircon does and automates and tells me. <laughs> it's probably kind of creepy to say that. Yeah, there's this little robot that's helping me, um, uh, and it needed that. It needed that structure, right? Okay, okay, and tell me a little bit more about this robot. I know many 
training business owners who run similar businesses to yours, but no one has this Mr. Zircon, and that's that's unique from my perspective. It's correct to say that you are able to grow a global brand mostly on your own thanks to the robot of yours. So how did you achieve that? Mm. And that I think that's uh, the biggest reason is just having been a developer. I've always had the belief that anything a robot can do, a human should not be doing. Uh, so everything that can be automated should be automated. So it and it's uh, nowadays it's so much easier to do that stuff, like with with Integromat and Zapier and the fact that everything is pretty much SaaS based and has an API. It's crazy easy to replace an admin person and a marketing person with a robot. You need somebody to do something with that output. But you know, uh, paying somebody to uh, go to Twitter.com and type in status updates and hit send. It is just robots can do that. Robots can analyze sentiment and write a post on their own based on what people are talking about. So I've always had that idea that um, it, it's very easy technically to do some of that stuff. And the other thing driving it was, you know, ta talking about just experimenting and growing it through experiments over time. One thing I knew that I did not want is I didn't want to wake up in like six, seven years and be in an office with 20 employees. Um, just because that's a, it's a whole new level of stress. It's a whole new level of um, being locked into more of a coalescing more into what um, businesses tend to evolve to. So I wanted to keep it small and nimble um, keep providing value, but, but just give it a different feel, right? Um, you know, attending people's workshops, doing lean coffees with them. If I'm in, if I'm in town somewhere, going to visit facilitators, companies who are doing stuff and just hang out and chat with them just to, to keep it very much about all the stuff that I talk about in lean change, which is, it's all about relationship building and connections is, is what it's all about. So the robot stuff was I'd get what anytime I'd get to a point where I'm like, okay, I've just done this exact same thing four times this week. Um, the robot needs to do that. <laughs> and then I would build a script to do it somehow, whatever needed at the time. And then that led to, you know, using story mapping and creating customer flows and uh, all these types of things that would just show what a person's life cycle was from either buying a book and going to a workshop or attending a meetup and getting digital credentials. Um, we, I have all that stuff in story maps and uh, all that stuff was automated. Yeah. Cool. All I can say it's, it's really cool. And one of the things that I realized that you have just mentioned one of the goals that you actually didn't talk about before. And it's, it is how you didn't want your business to be in a few years. And this had been driven you all the way for all these years, like creating a very autonomous system, which works pretty much without your involvement, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember one, I was at an event talking about something and I mentioned 
I mentioned a thing from another, well, in the book, there's a mention of another framework. Let's just call it that. And I, I met these framework people at a conference here in Toronto and somebody I was, you know, just having lunch somewhere. And one of those folks were at the table and they said, oh yeah, you're, you wrote this. And yeah, we, we were meaning to talk to you about that. And I thought, oh, cool. That maybe let's talk about some ideas. Let's talk about whatever. The only thing they were concerned about was I put the registered trademark symbol in the wrong spot when I mentioned the name of their thing. And, and that, that just has stuck in my brain as, and I, I've talked to the leaders in this organization as well. Um, and they're like, how do you, ins how do you ensure consistency across all of your workshops for everybody? And I was like, it's impossible. How do you get somebody who's trying to, uh, get a more, um, a rigid culture, they're teaching change in a certain way. So we have learning objectives. We have more of a community feel, but it, it, it does get customized a little bit between different countries because change doesn't work the same anywhere. Right. Um, so having that conversation of, you know, how do you, how do you ensure consistent brand standards and how do you ensure people are using the right hex code for your color and how do you, all this rigid stuff. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to become that. I don't, because that's not how change is. Change adapts, right? And it's the approach that they use is more about how do we constrain and make sure people are following the rules? And my approach has always been, how do I put the right enabling constraints that helps them be successful, but it puts enough guardrails in place that we keep a purpose and a value-driven um, organization in the first place. And if people go outside of that, it's not because of the person, it's because of me, right? If, if I, if somebody comes in and it happened once I had one facilitator that came in and tried to take the material and brand it as their own and tried to steal some of my facilitators. Um, and that's, it's not him. It's, he was doing what he needed to grow a business. That says more about my onboarding and like who I bring into the network, which is why it's a little more constrained than anything else. So just seeing how those more traditional organizations were operating, I'm like, you know what? I, I don't want to put somebody on a performance review because they use the wrong shade of green on their website. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's deep. What surprises me is how different you are to many, many people I know personally. Um, when you said that you actually had one facilitator who tried to steal uh, your materials and took some of your facilitators and you just, it's not him, it's me. This is a very, very different level of personal responsibility and personal insights and how things should work. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually it's, it's more plain culture. And this case is, is very obvious one, right? So someone came in and tried to steal from you and it's and you say it's not me, it's him. Yeah. <laughs> it's why it's me. <laughs> this is very, very different to what we usually hear. 
and it resonates so much with me as a recently fired out marketing person and before that again several months uh, before I fired salespersons because of the very same approach um, as they constantly move responsibility for themselves. This is why it's so cool to hear from you. Really, um, I'm impressed. Okay, one more question for you. When did you see the business started growing? Hey, when did you realize that, um, okay, uh, this is a moment and this is the moment and I can go full time and concentrate only on building my business? Now I can like stop going back to coaching or doing client gigs or etc. Mm-hmm. Um, on the practical side, it was you know when when there's enough revenue to support my lavish lifestyle. <laughs> it's like hey, I I can buy groceries next month and I don't have to get a consulting gig, right? <laughs> so, so that that was. You know, revenue was never the the first goal, but that was the first indicator that said, you know what, I don't have to, um, I don't have to take a coaching gig or a training gig if I don't want to, because you know you've probably seen with startups too. There's times when you're just like, uh, I don't have any money to keep the lights on next month. Um, you know, if I've got a contractor, I have to pay. I'm like, oh crap, I can't pay them. Uh, so I'm going to go do a side hustle or I'll go find a training gig or I'll schedule a public course. Um, I, you know, I got into this transition part where I'd be, you know, I'm probably going to be out of money in a couple of months. I should schedule a training course, like something that's easy to sell. That's blah, blah, blah. Once I stopped having to do that, that was the indication that this this can be a full-time thing. And then that led to the responsibility of like, once it's a full-time thing, like it's a full-time thing until it runs its course. And that means does it is the end point a sale to another organization? Is the end point a succession plan where somebody else takes over the stuff that I've been doing? So then the reality of a actual company starts to set in. But I would say it was primarily when I didn't have to, you know, uh, do any agile coaching, consulting, training work that I didn't want to. Okay, okay. I got it. Damn, man, it makes sense. So as soon as you're, as soon as you have enough money to stop worrying about any financial obligations, uh, it was a click for you, right? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Okay, moving back to these days, I see that everything is good, and you extended the team recently. So, what is the most pressing issue? you have these days? Um, a, a few things. Uh, one being, honestly, just having to learn how to work with people again. So Sarika and I have talked about this a lot because she's done a lot of independent work too. I've uh, been an independent coach and consultant and trainer for such a long time. And I've been independent for so long. Working with other people is is just something we we both had to learn, you know, how to rely on each other, how to, you know, build, we've known each other for probably four, four to five years, I guess, through Spark the Change. And she was in my workshop in Helsinki, uh, I think in 2017 or so. So we've known each other for a while and we've been back and forth for a while. 
So that, that was one that was hard. Um, cause obviously, well, you know, this too, as a founder, at some point you're probably writing a lot less code now than you were. Yeah. So you, you, you got to learn how to let go. And then, you know, if somebody's writing some code and they're using camel case and you're like, Hey, no, that's not the way I <laughs> right? Like you get it. You got to let go and you got to just let things happen the way they do, which is hard because I think there's just a whole pile of things in there. I've been working independently for m most of the last 20 years and, um, all the business stuff, like people are surprised. They're just like, oh, you know, I want to create a digital credential program. Can you tell me who designed your badges? I'm like, I did. Um, oh, I like your website. You know, how did you create that little thing? Oh, I did that. Right. So like all the graphics, all the brochures, all the training material, I, I I'm have to learn how to let go and let other people do that stuff. Right. That's the definitely the hardest, the hardest thing to do. Okay, okay. Aren't you afraid that in a couple of years, <laughs> um, when you when you had one person, then another one, and whoops, um, <laughs> yeah, you you see yourself. I mean, maybe not in a physical office, but in a virtual one, and forty people working for you, and you're like, hmm, I need to do something with it. Mm. I think. Uh, to a degree, but I think the the way that we're building it is it's very much like uh, like Nal's uh, Peach model, which is it, it wouldn't be people wouldn't join to do a role, right? Like I would never hire a salesperson to do sales, just sales, right? Ever I don't we've never actually had sales people. I've never done any direct sales, anything like that. It's all pretty much been been word of mouth and social media engagement. That's that's brought it this far. Um, but it would never be something that was departmentalized. You know, I wouldn't hire any, you know, maybe some IT related stuff. It might be an outsourced IT person that we have for 15 hours a month. And that's just to do stupid things. Like you found the SSL certificate on one of my sites. I'm in mid move that, um, so stuff like that, that I do myself like all the backup and the hosting and all the infrastructure and the robot maintenance and all that stuff. I do all that because I like doing it and it doesn't take a lot of time, but I would never have like an IT department that their sole function is just that. They'd have to be like a change person who's also technical, that we all work together to figure out how to how to grow the network. Um, so, you know, Fiverr is a beautiful thing, right? There's a lot of easy ways you can run a global business when you need specialization when you need it you don't necessarily have to create a whole marketing department and all they do is crank out newsletters and stuff like that right you can hire somebody to, to build you an awesome template stuff stuff like that so i think the way that we're approaching it with the okrs and, and how we work together um would help us avoid that uh, that that problem down the road Okay, okay, I see. And I definitely wish you success with that uh, because what you are building right now looks pretty awesome. Mm. One more tiny question and we are going to wrap things up, okay? Um, so looking back at the very beginning of your company, what would you do differently to achieve the current state faster? Hmm, like 2014-ish around the beginning of everything? 
around then? Like that far back? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, then you decided uh, to make it a full-time commitment. Right. I, I would say two things I would have liked to have tried, which I might try in the future. One is um, uh, um, getting involved with an incubator, like a startup incubator or, you know, Tiny Capital or one of these companies that, um, that, that puts you through an accelerator program to help you think through the ideas. Because a lot of the time it's, you know, it's, it's, it's me and my own brain. So having an, a, an outside perspective, I think, would have helped um, a lot. Uh, it probably, like, we'd be where we are today probably two years ago, easily, I think, just by getting that outside voice of reason. Um, you know, maybe funding, but mm, it's always been self-funded, or it's always been revenue positive from the very beginning. So that's not that big of a deal, because fast growth was never really the objective plus it's the change industry so the change industry still moves very very slow um so it hasn't needed to outcompete other people uh so but i think that yeah the one thing would have been definitely an incubator a startup hub or just getting more involved because i used to be involved in the lean startup community in toronto a lot in 2012 2013 ish um and then when i this thing started moving i didn't really go back to that community because it was more of a services thing not so much of a products thing but that that would probably be the one yeah okay yeah that's that's an interesting that's an interesting idea uh to i mean even for training businesses who usually provide not products but mm -hmm. services right to uh to go through accelerator because uh to get this um product perspective not to maybe get investments or may meet founders but uh, um, understand how how product better understand how product works and uh, uh, to communicate with someone in the beginning to change yeah because yeah. i know you went you went through one too right uh like four or five years ago or even longer yeah yeah i i, I went through one um in in the beginning of workshop butler uh, it uh, it was a mixed experience, I would say. Uh, to, uh, on one side, it uh, definitely helped uh, to move faster in the beginning. Uh, but what it didn't uh, help me to do uh, is um, mm, uh, to um, how to say to focus on one thing. And this is uh, what uh, was the problem of uh, workshop butter for, for quite a long time. And it's still actually to, to some extent. So we are working uh, on this on focusing and making, uh, making it clear for what we are doing. And this is uh, what uh, when I go, went through Accelerator, um, I, I guess some of the people uh, well, mentors they didn't understand clearly because mm -hmm. I didn't explain it clearly, and uh, because of that, uh, I, I I got a lot, but I didn't get this uh, uh, really strict focus on one thing, and it uh, which uh, um, didn't allow allow us to to move faster and to grow in a, in a better way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was yeah, it was really it was it, it was a good experience. That's for sure. Cool. 
Thank you very much for staying with us to the end. And thank you, Jason, for being a fantastic guest. You can find the links to Jason's books, the full transcription of this episode and its summary via the link in the description. This was our first episode and your feedback is extremely valuable to my team and me. So, if you have a suggestion or you know an interesting speaker, please drop us a line at hi at trainingbusinessanatomy.com. One more time, hi hi at trainingbusinessanatomy.com. We are very open to any feedback and I will reply to you personally. Of course, if you've loved this episode that much, feel free to rate us on the platform of your choice. That was your host, Sergey Kotlov. Stay tuned.